Well, hey there, and welcome to episode number 90 of Groove, the No Treble podcast, which you can always find at notreble.com. My name is Mitch Joel. Let's get on with the show. Who are you and what do you do? I'm trying to remember. Uh, (laughs) My name is Fat Mike. Uh, Oh, what do I do? I play uh, mostly, I just sit around playing bass guitar. I'm happy to, I'm wondering, (laughs) are you just saying that to give me some platitudes for a bass podcast or is that true? Oh, is this a bass player podcast? (laughs) Oh, I should have prepared more. (laughs) You should have practiced more. Practice, yeah. Practice is not something I am familiar with. Practice is true? word that I that I can't understand. Well, so tell me, what you, is that like you don't fiddle around on the bass ever unless you have to write a song or play live? Or like, yes, what do you mean? I, I I never play bass. Uh, is that true? That absolutely true. I write everything on guitar. Uh, I write everything on acoustic guitar, and uh, my band, No Effects. Uh, as well as me first in the Gimme Gimme's, neither one of us rehearse. We, uh, we do a long extended sound check on our first show over tour. And these days we only play weekends, so we never rehearse. Uh, it's up to the band. It's it's up to each member to practice on your own. Is this how you maintain the the legendary status? (laughs) That's gonna say that and that and the 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 punk culture is that a way to maintain it by just seeing what happens? No, it's just uh, we're really lazy. Come and, on, no, I'm serious. It's it's a joke. I'm not I'm not kidding. Uh, you could look at our. I'll show you plane tickets when we get to Europe for a tour. We go the day before a tour. They set up. And we, you generally do like a two hour rehearsal and then play a festival in front of 30,000 people. And it's usually one or two shows where we're not very good. And by the third show, we're fucking rocking. Well, how do you feel about that? There are people who are paying to see those first two shows and probably want to really enjoy a great show. So they're generally Germans. So <laughs> it's not, uh, it, it's not that big a deal, <laughs> but, uh, I thought we, it, it, no, it's, We've no effects has built a career where like the other night we played and we, we only made like four or five big mistakes in the, in the whole hour. And that was something people were like, that's the best I've ever seen you guys. (laughs) Yeah, no, we, we've always set the bar low for playing live. I mean, first of all, you got me as a singer, so I don't have the best voice. I mean, I'm in pitch normally, but. There hasn't been a show in 15 years where I've remembered all the words. No way. There's no fucking way I'm remembering words, especially because no effects, as you may know, doesn't sing very many choruses. So, you know, based, uh, songs like the idiots are taken over or linoleum or Bob, there's no chorus. You just, you have to sing every word. And when you forget one line, you have no idea what's coming next. So, so, no desire for teleprompters or anything like that, Mike? Uh, no, that would, 
that's admitting that you're in really sad shape. Teleprompters. I just, you know, I go with the second verse, same as the first. Hey! And people have come to expect that and, and cherish that about no effects. So, so it becomes more than the show. There's, a, I mean, it is true. And again, we were talking before I hit re record that, you know, back in the day, in the early days of fat records and what you guys were doing, there was a definite culture attached to it. And it was very different at the time because of what was happening in music. It feels to me like there's no desire for you to change that, meaning to, to remove that, that maybe there's some of that you enjoy that tension, perhaps that tension of like, let's see what happens, which for most people would be just dreadful. Like not having to <laughs> not practicing would be like, I can't go out there with thousands of people who are paying to see me and be like this. Well, that's, yeah, that is the no effects culture we've built. Where we fuck up, people think it's charming. If a band of professionals fucked up, you'd be like, what the fuck? Did you do that? He just played the wrong note. I mean, the other night in San Diego, literally, I was playing a song. At, uh, at This happened like three or four times. And I'm playing the verse, and I don't remember what note the chorus starts on. Because usually during a song, what I'm thinking about is, what am I going to say between songs next? Right. Because, you know, uh, but we, we've spent an hour and 15 minutes and we've timed this. It's pretty consistent. There's 30 minutes of talking and 45 minutes of music playing. <laughs> uh, and because that's, I think that's what people like about NoFX too, is that it's all improv. I change the set all the time. I put in songs that the band hasn't practiced at all. Like the, they, don't, they haven't played in years, but muscle memory comes back and people just don't care that much. People want to oh, have a good, they, they want to have a good time. Now, the reason it works, two reasons why it always works. No, I'll give you three. Our drummer is fucking awesome. He doesn't fuck up. And it really keeps everything in, in there, in the pocket. And if a guitar player misses a note or I miss a note, people really don't notice. Fast, energetic music. And we're in tune. We always make sure to tune, which is the big problem in rock and roll. If someone's out of tune, everything's bad. Right. So I'll what happened? something else, Mitch, no, Mitch. Go ahead, please. That you won't believe this either. It really sounds like you don't believe a lot of this. Let me tell no, you. I've interviewed Mitch. you before and I've, I know your work and I, I buy into it. I think part of my smiling and smirking is the character that you are. I find engaging, right? So I yeah. like, like, I'm just smiling along because it's like a kind well, of you want to hear. I have no shame and I have no pride. Those are two <laughs> things that I, I shedded many years ago because they don't do you any good. They really, they really don't. Okay. But, but earlier you're like, we don't work so hard. I mean, Mike, you've got a record label that's been really, really successful. And oh, I know it takes, hard. okay. They, they don't just, you work very hard. Yeah. I, uh, as far as both our guitar players go, one of them does a little TV work. Hefe is a Mayan. He's on the news, uh, <laughs> the new, the, on the television series, the Mayans. And Eric Melvin never works. He does not work. He will not work outside of playing shows. Me, on the other hand, I fucking work my ass off. Yeah, I have a record label. I have a, a panty for men company. Yeah. I have my podcast. Uh, that's, just, that's just the beginning of it. I, I'm trying to figure out where the, how I want to work chronologically or not, but let's talk a little bit about the podcast. Fight. Fat Mike's Fat Mike. Great name. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> um, he was just I, right there. 
Yeah, I will never say that someone's late to the podcasting game only because I started my business podcast in the early 2000s. So I've been doing this like almost 20 years and yet business, you know, podcasts come out all the time and they rethink things, they, they redo them. But as I'm sure you're now seeing, as much fun as it is to have these conversations, it does take work. You have to oh, yeah. guess, prepare. Why did you decide do, to add in prepare. something? <laughs> do you I've watched some yeah. of the episodes? Because Oh, have you? That's cool. I, I just, why did I add something? Because I just think of ideas constantly and I'm like, shit, why has no one done that? Or why am I not doing that? And this is missing. Something is missing in our society. And that's why I do things. That's why, like the Punk and Drubbuck Festival. Why has no one done a punk rock over 21 festival with free beer for fuck's sake? It's right there. Like, yeah, the warp tour was not fun for adults to go to. You had to drink in a little area. <laughs> it was like a little beer garden with a with a fence. Right. And uh, you don't want to you want to see a band. You don't want a little kids around. You're looking at how old you are. And and now Pugadrobic, it's we're doing five thousand successful people a night, and our bar is doing crazy. We're doing like forty dollars a head, and we only play on Saturday night on Saturdays. And you have free beer, and everyone has such a great time. And are you serious? You want to see sixty bands play? No, 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 no. We have six bands, and there's like thirty to forty minutes between bands where we play nice music, like Curb Albert, and people can drink and have a great time. Yeah, I, I'm not a festival guy. I like the idea of going home. I like the, and I also like the idea of not necessarily watching bands in an open, dirty field. Well, nowadays. Our fields are very clean. Manicured. Uh, you know, we're, we're outstanding in our field, actually. It's uh, definitely, we, we look for grassy knolls. We played Dallas-Fort Worth uh, a few years ago on a grassy knoll. That was pretty cool. Uh, yeah, that was not, pretty not wild, the, actually. Not, not the one. but Close enough. <laughs> Same state. Well, these days, I'd rather be outside in a, in a field drinking a couple beers than uh, being in a packed club you know because of covid or yeah yeah is that something that i mean i, I was wondering what you're what i've not i haven't been in a, in a in a crowded club since covid but what was it like being shut down locked in because I, you, you talked earlier about the panties company that you're doing and there was when i was reading about it there was talk that you put it on pause because of covid what was it like for you to be relegated to either home or, or your office for you? For me, it was a great time in my life. It was, it was a renaissance, maybe. I have a really cool house in the valley with a, uh, a huge backyard, and I don't leave anyway, generally. Oh. I have a studio here. I have my dungeon. I have a, a badminton court. I only leave to bike ride. When did the incessant touring and, and that end for you? What year was that? Oh, touring... Incessant touring ended in the 90s. Oh, I didn't know that. Okay. I didn't know that. We, when we tour, uh, we have a maximum of 12 shows. We'll not do more than 12 shows in three weeks. That's my limit of alcohol and drug intake is about 12 days. I won't play more than four days a week because I, I don't want to kill myself, but I like to, to party after a show and during a show. I and before and I was going to say, you can't do the show without that. Is that kind of just how it is? Oh, no, I, I do. Show, I do shows without it. I just had a, a stint of 10 months sober. 
And I played a, a few shows there. But then, you know, I just realized that, well, I have a lot more fun when I'm drinking. And I don't want to fake being on stage. I don't want to fake having a good time. It kind of cheats our fans. We have one of the few jobs in the world that you're expected to drink. And people are bummed if you don't. Like, oh, you don't want to drink? You're, you're playing a show. Hour and 15 minutes, you're sharing with us. We're allowed to have a good time. It's not like we're driving machinery or doing surgery. We're playing fucking punk rock. But you're doing something to your body. There's got to be that concern as you get older. You're like, who cares? Whatever it is. Well, I ride my bike. My weight is down. My organs all work. So I'm not under the belief. I mean, Jack Nicholson was doing coke until his 70s. It's all about how well you take care of yourself. Not that I'm a proponent of drugs, but I'm to I'm totally a proponent of drugs. Uh, if, if if you do them, if you don't let them take control of you, it's funny, Mike. You know, I was thinking about this conversation, and I've been I was thinking reflecting back on when I first heard about No Effects, and then obviously Fat Records as well, and the things you say and the way you speak. There's a lot of what would be considered at the time cultural taboos that become more mainstream. I was thinking about things like when you started talking about sexuality. Even things like tattoos, even things like cultural norms, fetish, whatever it might be. And as I'm listening to you say this, I'm processing and trying to, well, how do I feel about the legalization of all this stuff? It's, yeah, people get, they love to stigmatize people. They love to feel that they're better than someone else. I remember someone in my leather family, this trans person, female to male, really looked down on me. Like, Mike, it's just so sad. You're just wasting your life away with these drugs. And I'm like, uh, I have millions of fans. I help people all over the world. I make people feel better about themselves. I have all these companies I have. Uh, you just, you just became assistant manager at CVS. And, but because you're sober now, because you had a real fucking addiction to opiates, you look down on me. Forget about how wealthy I am and how I put out wonderful music to so many people with all my bands and all this stuff. But you found a way to, to look at poor Mike because I hit the sauce and do some powder now and then. And that's what the world loves. They love to look down on people, makes them feel better about themselves. So again, in my other world, when I'm not interviewing bass players, which is 99.9% .9 of my life, I, I am a business person. I speak to businesses. I actually present on stage. I do a lot of that stuff. And I'm thinking about, there's a lot of talk these days in particular about self-talk, self-esteem, how we see ourselves, especially post-pandemic where people, some people are feeling really down and depressed and really not sure of their place in the world and what they're meant to do. Can you cycle back for me? I'm just curious in your life, when did you start really understanding yourself? Because if there's one thing I feel or when I either see your public persona or read about you is this is somebody who is very, very comfortable, not only doing the things they want to do, but even talking about them. Cause yeah, even the things it, well, because that you do, you will talk about very freely. Right. Well, it's because I, like I said, I shedded shame and pride. Those are both when? terrible things to have, uh, over, over the years. I mean, it's always your life. You have to always be growing and you learn more and more things about yourself as you get old. I mean, I became a public crossdresser at 45, you know, very late in life. And this 
tattoo I have, even though this is an audio podcast, I'm still going to show it. And I'd like some silence. <laughs> no, I, you know, it says, don't dream it, be it for Rocky right. Horror. And those words actually haunted me my whole life. Because that was the first music I've ever heard from my TV set when I was eight. Don't dream it, be it. And I could not do, you know, I tried, but I was, I was, I had shame. I had shame in being a crossdresser and a submissive and, uh, so many, and you know, I got into punk rock because I felt the only place I fit in because I'm on the spectrum somewhere for sure. You know, I used to be a, a number savant when I was a, a kid, uh, add up, you know, five digit numbers, like 10, it's like, boom, when I was six. And I, th I think that's why music speaks to me because it's vibrations. Anyway, back to the question. I'm still learning. I'm still becoming more comfortable with myself. I identify as uh, like a boy girl now. I spend most of my time in really feminine clothes, not just, you know, a dress, but like frilly. <laughs> uh, when I'm at home and, and it's gotten to a point where, you know, I'll have like gangsters over here and uh, hip hop artists and bikers and whoever, who's ever hanging at my house and they had to get used to me. I don't feel uncomfortable at all. They have to get comfortable and they are. And like toughest dudes would be like, dude, like, I don't know how you do it. How do you just dress like that and not care? It's, it's uh, a lifetime of learning how to do that. Were you not like this as a kid? I guess I'm curious. If no, you I was like this as a kid. Were you? No, I knew my sexuality. I knew my sexuality was submissive male, and I knew I liked to cross dress, but I didn't tell anybody that. No way. Not punk rock. And is saying it publicly or talking about it does that help take you further? Absolutely. One thing I know I'll be doing in my future is public speaking. And this isn't a joke. It's demotivational speaking. And what it is, is uh, people do not know what happiness is. They don't know how to find it. They don't, they have no idea what it is. And I help people find that. And people need to find what makes them happy. What makes you happy? What, what are you passionate about? What would you love to be doing? What if you haven't not tried yet? And once you find that out, then you realize, uh, it's not my job. Your job is how you make money so you can find your happiness. And it's, and success is happiness. It's not how much money you can make. And yes, I've made money, but you know, I was going to play in a punk band my whole life, no matter what. And in the eighties and early nineties, you could not make a living off that. <laughs> it didn't matter. That's why I went to college. I went to real estate school. And I was like, I'm going to be a real estate agent. I got, you know, I, I ended up graduating on stuff and real estate agent. And I'll play punk in the summer or on weekends because I love playing punk rock. And at the time, my girlfriend, we did SM. We're building our dungeon. And it's like, I had two things that brought me happiness. And duh, that is success. It's not, that's why it's a deep, I want to be a demotivational speaker because you don't have to fucking work so hard for money so you can have more stress. Like, like buying a house. What a stupid thing that is. What a way to be stressed for the rest of your life, unless you can really afford it. And people right. always buy houses that they can't afford. Great. 
So it puts a strain on your marriage. And why don't we have some kids to make the marriage even worse? But some of the things that you're talking about, which lead to where you are, require a level of experimentation. And where I think the gap is- Not if you have role models. Not Yeah, but but if you have role models that are are teaching you how to be happy, it helps. You have to be open to trying things. And for a lot of people, that's the block. They won't experiment. They won't try that other job or playing, even if they are a real estate agent and they love punk, it's like trying it on the weekend feels like- even those little hurdles seem to be the challenge for most people, I think. Yeah. Well, and it, it, it all starts with sexuality. I dare any man to show their partner the porn they watch. <laughs> if once you get to that point with your partner where you can show them what you watch, you're, you're in good shape. <laughs> it's a healthy relationship. <laughs> what what is? I mean, you know, a lot of people just, you know, want, want to see you know blondes with big tits or or brunettes with big cocks. I don't know, but uh, people I didn't realize that was the opposite. <laughs> it, it, well, I don't know, <laughs> but uh, so many people, their sexuality is repressed, and they're not asking for what they want. You know, everybody likes something in their body. You know, whether it's a finger or a plug or a cock or a tongue, people want things in their ass. That's just how it is. And people are scared to ask for it because of rejection. I'm trying to segue into the base now. Do you have a, do you have a, do you have something bottom, for me here? Big bottom. People love that big bottom. Yeah, let's talk about the base. Tell me a little bit about. Let's talk about how important base is in a band and how people well, don't, don't realize that. So, so tell me a bit about that because. You're known as saying to people, for bass players to play lightly, you're known as saying things like, we make others sound better. So tell me me a little bit about that. Well, that's why I have this Jim Dunlop pick now. Uh, Hold on, I don't have commercial music here. Let me, no, I don't have commercial music. Go on. (laughs) Well, they they just came in the mail literally yesterday. So yeah, uh, I convinced Jim Dunlop to make me a pick and they've never done that before. they silkscreen picks, but they actually made a mold for me. Uh, he was like, why would I do that? We haven't changed our fucking mold since the sixties kid. I'm like, well, so what, is that an excuse? Why don't you just do this? Cause I have a reason for these picks playing a 0.60, I think is the perfect size pick for a bass player. Uh, certain styles I play on bass, you cannot do with your fingers and you cannot do with a thick pick. Uh, I can't, and I don't think anyone else can. Yeah. You can't do uh, 64 fourth notes. I think that's the right thing. Uh, triplets with your fingers or with a thick pick. You can't do it. And uh, that's not the only reason, but uh, being a, a, a record producer for, I don't know, 30 some years, you know, you start to notice patterns like the bass is always sharp. And you have to tune down your bass a few cents. Uh, so it'll sound like, so it'll be in tune with the guitar. And the reasons of that are one, because bass players play hard. because They, they kind of feel like they need to play hard. You know, and all that is, is making all your notes sharp, which makes the whole band sound bad. Uh, so unless you tune down just enough to know, like when people tune a bass or a guitar, you hit the string and then you wait for it to settle in. But nobody plays that way for fuck's sake. 
you play, you, you're chugging at it. All you hear is the first hit. So the first hit has to be the note you're going for. Now, when you play a thin pick, it doesn't go sharp. And what are, what are strings? They're just fucking vibrations. And, uh, the softer you hit, the more pure the note is. And you're going to make the guitar sound so much better. Uh, and the kick and the whole fucking room is going to sound better if you play softly. So as a player and singer and producer, do you think about the bass as uh, if you mentioned that you write on acoustic guitar, are you thinking about where it's going to fit in or do you see it as adding so that it comes closer together? How do you think about the instrument? Well, uh, as most people do in the studio, we started by doing drums and then bass and then everything on top of it. And then I realized in the nineties, that is ridiculous. Uh, because you can't tell when a bass is out of tune by playing it. You can tell when a guitar is out of tune because one string's a little out. Oh shit, that's out. So why the fuck would you play bass first? Uh, what kept happening is on records, we go, well, something's out of tune and then you have to start over. So you yeah. start with the guitar and then uh, you put vocals down because melody has to, melody's king. And you figure out the best melody you can, which is why I use a lot of power chords and a lot of two string chords. Yeah. Because uh, they're, they're vague. So your melody can really go major or minor, or it can go a lot of different directions uh, and surprise the listener which is what good music does. It surprises the listener. And, and after everything's done, then you put the bass in because, uh, you can, that's really more than icing on the cake because you can play a very interesting bass line, but there has to be the chords and the melody first. So I'm like, you're doing bass after drums, guitars, and vocals are done after harmonies even. <laughs> Does anybody else? Do you know anybody else who records like this? Like talk about it. People- Paul McCartney did it like that, and and George Martin, and I did not know that when I was doing it. Someone told me that, and that's and it made sense. It's like, well, duh. That's why the Beatles are the greatest band of all time. One of the reasons, because even though they did have big ego problems, when it came to the song, they all came together, and it's unbelievable to me. Listen to George Martin and the bass has to go last. Hmm. If you want to play an interesting bass line, you could just play root notes and often you do because that's what makes the guitar sound better and the melody sound better. But when, when, but there's so, but now when I'm playing this bait and I'm hitting this third or fourth or, or going to this, doing a bass run, you know, you're not stepping, stepping on anybody. So do you know also? When that happens, are you hearing different bass lines than you might have suspected when you were writing the song or getting those initial bed tracks? A- absolutely, because I used to write bass lines first. Like I- I'd have a song and I'd write a bass right. line to it. And then I'd try to do my melody and go, oh, fuck, the melody doesn't work anymore because I just, there's a major bass note in there and, and the rhythm is all wrong. And then I just said, oh, this is lame. I have to do my melody first and then do the bass. And it's really, it's so intuitive and it's just, people don't do that because it's not, it's not the way it's done. And, oh man, when someone tells me this is the way it's done and I fucking, 
can't stand that. And, you know, half the time after you fuck with them and, and no, I'm going to do it my way. Half the time you go, oh, I guess it's done like that for a reason because it makes sense. But that's not the reason. Just say those words is not the reason why it's done that way. I'm guessing that it must have fundamentally changed not just the songs, but how you play them. I mean, that, sure. that, like, like for, for many people, they'll think there's a simplicity to punk in general, which is, is not my world because I grew up in that world and I love the music and I, I know exactly how it makes me feel and how it's done. But it sounds like there's, there was this journey. And what's interesting is it, it happened during recording, not during live. A lot of times players change live more than recording. And then you're becoming this other type of player. It's like pretty unique. Well, yeah, yeah. And it's because I produce so many bands. And when I produce, I change chords. That's what I do. I change chords and melody. And that's the secret to good, not the secret to good music, but people think, uh, you know, a catchy chorus is what does it. And people need to hear something 12 times before it sticks in their head. And while that may be true, those aren't the songs that people will listen to a hundred times. They'll listen to them 12 times less because your ear gets fucking sick of the same fucking chorus. And that's one of the reasons I don't do choruses, but it's also that like the new writing I'm doing and you, and people will hear this on our new, our next album. I have songs with 40 or 50, not different chords, but 40 or 50 chords played, maybe 60, and there's no pattern in the song. There's no pattern. It's not four chords. It's a 50 chord progression because I try to make the best music I can. And my theory on music now is you want to sing a chorus. You want to sing the same melody. You just want to change the chords. So what that does, it, it gives people something to hang on to. It gives your ear, ooh, I know that melody, but it's different. And I've been doing that, like uh, that song, Eat the Meek, which is from 98, on, it's a reggae song. Each verse is a different chord progression. And nobody has any idea because the melody stays very similar. And all they know is that I like this song. And they can hear it three times more because they don't get bored of it. They don't know why. Your ear doesn't need to know why. It just needs to know what pleases it. It needs vibrations. And because that's what it all is. It's all vibrations. But, but if you're writing on acoustic guitar and now you've developed this bass after that creates a new level of melodies and like you talked about triplets and chords, mm -hmm. do you ever find yourself writing in that bass part because it's last there's a certain aspect that's going to be driving the melody for sure then well i have written like that once in my musical home street home there's a song called three string guitar and it's a song played on one string because the guy on the street only has three strings and there's no pattern at all it just meanders to different notes and when we were performing this musical in a at the Eugene O'Neill Theater Center in Connecticut, there was one day where critics come and they, you know, they, they critique your musical. And one of the critics said, this is one of the most unique, complicated, and wonderful songs I've ever heard. And he goes, absolutely the best song in the musical. 
And it's the first person who said that. And I go, correct, sir. You are correct. It's my favorite song. And what made it so good is you don't think about where it's going. You, it's one note. So you don't know what it is. It's not like a chord. And when you hear a melody against one note, it makes such a wonderful sound. Yeah. Which you don't get when you're playing on a piano. Like if you're playing piano chords, your melody gets watered down by all these other notes floating around. All right? And a guitar, a six-string guitar chord, it hurts melody. When you play, when you sing a melody against one note, it's just physics at its best. You get a vibration that is just ear candy. And that's what this song, Three String Guitar, does. And that's why bass is so fucking important. That's why the Beatles, they have some bass, they have some songs where guitar was just percussive. It was barely an instrument. Yeah. And it's all bass because melody sounds better on bass. It just does. And that's why playing a pure bass note is so important in bands. I've talked about this story before with other players where I found myself being really surprised in the Rick Rubin, Paul McCartney documentary. I think it's called Three to One McCartney that they were pulling out these bass parts and I thought they were other instruments. Like that's how melodic and different they were. It was very shocking to me. Yeah. Yeah. I realized this 20, 25 years ago. Actually, I didn't hear the Beatles until college except for a song on the radio now and then because my parents didn't listen to music and I got into punk rock when I was like 13. So when I was in college, I started buying some Beatles records and I was like, what the fuck? This is awesome. And, and even strange, stranger than that is I had a van that I used to drive to San Francisco to LA back and forth all the time because my band was in LA. I went to college in San Francisco. And for a couple of years, I only had one speaker in my van. And when I listened to Beatles, I'd be like, whoa, this is awesome. Mono. <laughs> it was mono. It was a mono. No, I just heard the left side. So you'd hear, the, you'd hear bass <laughs> and harmonies, you know, and, and two different drums. And it, it, it gave, I didn't know it at the time, but it gave me an education on, uh, on tones. And uh, it's all about the vibrations. And, and when people... Uh, like, I don't, I don't know how to play scales. No idea how to play scales. I have to, I have to write every bass line and then I have to memorize it. But I can't jam. I just, I write what sounds good. And, uh, and I'll know, I'll know ahead of time. Like if a harmony works, I'll go, this harmony will work throughout the song on this. And people are like, well, we should try it. I go, we could try it, but I give it like a 90% chance that it'll work even though I haven't heard it yet because it's, it's all about the vibrations. Yeah. And I think through the years, as you write and have confidence in what you're doing, what's also happening is you may not know music theory or scales, but you understand it. And it's almost like a dyslexic person who figures out how to read in their own way and it becomes very effective for them. Yeah. yeah and that's, that, that's right. That's why I think music is not as subjective as people say it is. How, how music makes you feel like people like the Rolling Stones for some who knows fucking why, but it's because it makes people feel good. They hear Jumpin' Jack Flash or Satisfaction, like, yeah, but 
fuck up. I mean, it's not uh, good. It may be good music, but it's not good songwriting. And and I don't particularly like music. I don't get the feeling people get. I love songs. I love good songs. And good What's songwriting is not subjective. It, there are people that are better songwriters. Right. Right. Yeah. I, I say the same thing about writing. I've written a couple of books and I, I often say everybody can write, but not everybody's a writer. Like when people say, oh, you're a bass player. I'm like, no, I know how to play bass. I'm not really a bass player. <laughs> like that's the way I delineate it a lot of times. Right. Right. Yeah. See, I'm, I'm not a, a, a singer, but I know how to write good melodies. It's been a fascinating conversation for me, just hearing how you think about music and where things go. The album's single album your 15th or 16th, I don't even know. And that's the one that just came out. That's not the one you're talking yeah. about that will be coming. As you evolve and as you think about music like this, how do the other members of the band feel when it's studio time or songwriting time or getting ready to record an album? Are they on the journey with you? Do you have the job of convincing? How do you, how do you no. explain? Um, so if, I had, if I had to convince them, I would have quit this band a long time ago. No, I write everything. Eric Melvin will write a guitar riff now and then that I use, but I've just always done all the writing and they just play what I, what I, what, what I show them. I mean, I've they're along for the, they're along for the, for the ride. Yeah. And, and just recently it's starting to bug them. Uh, <laughs> Time to change members. <laughs> no, not yet. That's the thing is, you know, uh, when you have magic in a band, you have magic. You can't right. start thinking about who can play better. Half our songs, we cannot play live. It's just how it is. But there's plenty of other songs we can play live. And, you know, so I what's the conversation like if, if they're not happy or they're, they're talking back? They don't. Oh, I thought you just said that they're starting to now. Oh, well, they want to play on more things. I see. Okay. In the studio. And it's just, okay. Especially with our new album, they haven't been in the studio in months. They just, they don't come anymore. They just don't come because our songs are, they're getting so complicated that I can't remember. Nobody can. And especially when you have a dozen new songs, how are you fucking supposed to remember songs that have no pattern and you can't read music? You need, you need charts that say, you know, A sharp. Chords, yeah, your chords. And, and chords, but, they, but half of my chords, they don't have names. You know, <laughs> like, like if you play a C major and you move all your fingers up a half step, except for the open notes, what the fuck is that called? I'm sure a music theorist could tell you. I'm, not, I'm the wrong guy to ask. <laughs> yeah, but that, I mean, because I discover things all the time, you know, and. Yeah, your, your experiment. I mean, you're playing your experiment thing for sure. So it's just, it's, it's frustrating especially because we were filming our every day in the studio for Patreon. You can watch this in the studio and it's, it'll take uh half a three hours to do a guitar track that really should take a half hour because you have to go part by part. You have to go four chords by four chords and it's just, it's not fun. Uh, it's not for my brain living in, in this head is not fun. It's not fun when I, when I spend, so many hours writing songs at night and 30 different versions. Cause I keep, cause I write, you know, stream of consciousness and then I'll forget, Oh shit, this went like this and I have to go back and, uh, so what's happening? Fucking time. Cause melody and chords are written at the same time. They have to be. 
So are you just recording everything? Is that how it works, Mike? You're just constantly recording whatever you're fidgeting around with? Yeah, I have 50 to 60 NoFX songs right now that aren't released. Uh, We're going to be releasing records every year from here on out. And that's what COVID did for me is I took the Stephen King approach. I recently heard what Stephen King does. He writes every day. And I read every he day. Does, yeah. on, on Writing is a great book. If you haven't read On Writing by Stephen King, it's awesome. Mm. I should. Great but book. I just, yeah. but I just, uh, during COVID, I just spent a lot of time writing. And I wouldn't feel good if I hadn't written at least one song. Actually, even better, listen to the audio book because he narrates it. That's even better. Oh, I love yeah, him. It's great. Meteor shit. He was, he was great in Creep Show. It's, it's great. Last question, knowing you, your personality, following your band for so long, I speak in my business podcast a lot about cancel culture with a lot of really interesting people. And I, I didn't want to dismiss that from this conversation because of how vocal you are. You'll say anything. When you see what's happening in our world today, is it laughable to you how we're canceling people for a joke, for whatever it might be? Do you think certainly, that we need to take these things more seriously? not laughable. Certainly, it's horrendous. When it started to touch comedians, it, it fucking hurts. When comedians are scared to say something because they might get canceled. And people don't look at no effects that way. But we are, if there ever was a comedic band, it's us. And it's improv. And we don't, you know, set up things. We just talk. And we're funny. Intent is everything. And if you're intending to make a, a joke that is it very hurtful and you get canceled for it because people are, people just take aim at people and everyone's targets now and they're looking for something. Well, and, uh, do you think about that? Do you care if Fat Mike gets canceled, if the podcast gets canceled, if the band gets canceled? Do you think about it? Do you care? Or? Well, absolutely. I care. I was crushed. That was the worst, the worst time of my life was getting death threats. Uh, when I, when I had a joke about a mediocre, very mediocre joke and comedians should, I was just, you know, I just had Doug Stanhope on my podcast and he goes for it, but things he says that you're like, oh my God, I can't believe he said that. After he talks about it for a while, you realize that it is politically correct. It's just how he says things. Yeah. And, and that's what I do. It's how I say things. Yeah, I, it's funny. I feel like you're, I always say that there's two parts to it. And I'm, I'm, maybe I'm being very simplistic about it too, which is context, which sounds like what you're saying. But I also think there's definition. And the definition is the tough one. It's like, do we, like, that joke was offensive. Well, what's our definition of a joke and our definition of offensive? And that's the, to me, is the problem is, and, and I think as, let's say you, you and I are aligned value wise, I think we would still have very differing definitions on it. It's like the whole cancel Elon Musk thing. You know, he has too much money. Well, what's too much? Like, I'm sure everybody has a different version of how much too much money might be for an individual. Well, and what do you do with that? Like, well, Bezos and Elon Musk, you should not be able to have a trillion dollars. I'm sorry. Right. Uh, I think we agree on that. Yeah. Yeah. There, there's a certain amount. And even a billion is too much for a person. There should be, a worldwide 90% tax. Like if you have it, you got to spend it in ways to help people. Yeah. You can't stockpile that much money. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's monopoly. It's, it's not fair. What's crazy is the system also, the way it works is it's almost like 
they don't even know they're stockpiling it. It's just the way the system works in that favor, which is also part of the problem, right? People do not understand money. Right. Uh, like, I don't, I don't, you know how many bases I own? Like three, I own one Fender P base, two Dan Electros. And Dan Electro, by the way, will not fucking sponsor me. And if you go to their website, I'm the only bass player on there. <laughs> so, and, what and, is that? Have you reached out? Have they reached oh, out? Oh, yeah. I was at NAMM. I go, hey, you know, I play Dan Electro every night, the same one. I've been playing it for 15 years. It's been smashed twice. I fix it with glue and I've been playing it forever. Can I get a new one? Here's a t shirt. They said, <laughs> and maybe after they hear this, Mike, no, 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 they won't. No, because, because, <laughs> Mike, no, you have, you have to sell bases before you have the money to give away bases. And who buys Dan Electros? I bought it because they're light and I have a bad back. So the bass I play live, th this you won't believe. We go on stage, I have one bass. That's it. Come on, you don't have a you don't have a bass in case a string breaks or something. I do not. Sometimes Come on, Mike. Uh, Mitch, I do not lie. I've never lied in my life. There often is a second bass because when we play separation of church and skate, it's in D sharp. When we're not on tour, we don't play that song because we have to take a whole other bass guitar. Right. And I've never broken a string. So why would you don't make you don't break bass strings. He came on stage and he grabbed my bass. He fell, grabbed, and I broke three. <laughs> I broke three strings, and it was so over. I actually, I borrowed a bass from another band. They had to go to their van and get it. it was being right. I'm fascinated by this conversation because we are in this world where if you're on tour, you want redundant amps, redundant pedals, and I've seen it backstage where I'm with friends or peers, and the setups are literally redundant. They're not yeah. to do anything except for if one fails and you're just like, that's what makes it live. And, and when you play softly, when you play gently, you don't break strings. It just doesn't happen. It's when people do jumps and do the windmill. And I guess the question then is, do you break picks? Because the picks are thin. <laughs> They're nylon. They don't break. They don't break nylon. You're right. <laughs> like, I can't thank you enough. And, for your and why are they pink? Because when you drop them, you can see them. In the dark, yeah. I, I really I can't thank you enough for your time, Mike. It, it's such a pleasure. The amount of music you've created, the, just the content in general, it's always so interesting to watch how your creative mind works. I know you think it might be crazy in there, but it seems it's unbelievable. I enjoy the body work is important. Thank you. Uh, I enjoyed this very much. And check out my new band, The Co-Defendants. And let people know where they can find out about the Fat Mike's Fat Mike podcast, too. Yeah. Look up Fat Mike's Fat Mike. <laughs> uh, on, on the internet and you'll be able to find it but co-defendants you cannot see us on social media you cannot find our stuff anywhere and you will enjoy it mitch it's it's a new genre we're calling crime wave so we have how does one look to acquire this music you can't okay so we have to look at, for at the end of the doc podcast there's a song that doc sings on his first song in 27 years and if you give me your email address, I'll send you a few songs. I will do that. That's how people have heard it so far, is me sending them songs. That's awesome. Mike, thanks for your time. Thank you. I enjoyed this very much. Mm -hmm.